Lord, we thank you for the privilege of your word. Lord, to have this record of the history of your people, Lord, is a true treasure. We, we just thank you, Lord, for um, breathing it out through your servant Moses so that we would be able to see, Lord, your hand at work through the ages. Now, Lord, as we come to this text, may we be humble. Lord, may we be teachable. And Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? What we are not, would you make us? Through your, uh, through your word and through the preaching of your word and by your Holy Spirit. And allow me simply to be your messenger, Lord. To be your mouthpiece so that your people can be strengthened in their faith. And Lord, that those who don't know you, uh, Lord, can be drawn into your family through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, it seems like it was a lot longer ago, but this past Monday, um, I was with JD, and we were walking around Vienna in particular, and one of the places that we went to was the Museum of Military History. And uh, I, I love to find out about the history of places that I go, and one of the things I have found is that going to a military museum in a country, in particular if it's the capital and that military museum is, is representing the whole of that country, you learn actually a lot about the history of the people. Uh, that kind of struck me the first time I was in Moscow and I went there and I just learned more about the people that, was th that were there and what they had gone through in their military history. And it's not necessarily what you would think. So here we are in Vienna, and of course, this is Austrian history. This is history of the um, Austro-Hungarian Empire. And as we went through this museum, we saw all sorts of beautiful paintings depicting all sorts of battles that took place um, around Europe, um, just masses of paintings. And we saw also swords and, and rifles and bayonets and knives of all sorts. Armor and uniforms, hats and boots, statues, machine guns, warships, and all sorts of propaganda. But there was one display that really caught my attention. And it was the display where you could stand next to the car that Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria and his wife were riding in when they were assassinated in... Um, Sarajevo. Now that, of course, was a trip that they were involved in uh, in 2000 and, or sorry, 1914 on June 28. He was assassinated by a 19-year-old young man who was a part of a resistance organization uh, called Black Hand. And next to his car at this museum, you could see the uniform that he was wearing that day with all its kind of pomp and circumstances and medals and holes where he was ultimately killed. You say, well, what's the significance of this? Well, this is actually an event that was a hinge that turned history. Many people look back at this moment, not just so much the assassination, but how the assassination was handled or mishandled. And it was the beginnings of the First World War. And many people believe that if it was handled differently, if the, the Serbians actually took a more serious approach to dealing with this issue, uh, thousands, millions of lives would have been spared 
But this was an event, a, a moment in history that is a hinge that turned our modern history um, in, in incredible ways. And many people died. A little bit more humility, a little bit more diplomacy, a little bit more uh, pursuit of justice, a little bit less pride, a little bit less offense, a little bit less stubbornness. Things could have changed. So it was daunting just to, to stand next to these items and to consider the effect of a moment in history. Now, if we look at history, we'll find that there are many hinges that changed the world. And in our text today, we have one of those hinges. It's a quiet hinge. It's not one that you typically would think of as being a major hinge that changed the course of history. But if you're a Bible believer and you've studied the Word of God for any amount of time, you will recognize what it is that I am shooting at here as we come to this text. It's the story of a family whose son would eventually lead Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And it's a remarkable story of God's providence. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about the tension of God's providence in raising up his deliverer for his people in the face of great opposition. Or to put it maybe in a shorter form, the tension of God's providence in providing a deliverer. This was a significant moment in the history of Israel. This is a significant moment in the history of what we know today as being the church. Friends, this is a hinge that we need to pay attention to. And we need to recognize was controlled and moved along by the providence of God. Now, there's a context that we need to understand. The context that we've seen so far is that um, there was a pharaoh who now was in power who had forgotten Joseph. Now, many generations had passed, and so it's understandable in one sense that Joseph had been forgotten, but his people hadn't been forgotten, they're right there. But the impact of Joseph on the Egyptians and how God used him to come into the land and, and actually uh, be able to answer a, a dream that Pharaoh had, and of course it, it revealed that there was going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, and, and Joseph was put in charge, and those things happened, and eventually that Pharaoh blessed Joseph and his family and gave them land where they could live. He welcomed them in and say, settle in the land of Goshen. But there rose up a Pharaoh, and this is the context that, that this story is in, who did not know Joseph. Now, it's possible that this, this Pharaoh just had forgotten of the, the legacy and the impact of Joseph, um, in particular for Egypt, or possibly he was willfully choosing to ignore that legacy. Um, my tendency is to think it's the latter. Um, I think the legacy of, of history is there, certainly with the people. And as we see in the story, there's this great fear that he is, he is stirring up among the people. So this, this forgotten aspect then continues on to the people being enslaved. And so he basically goes and gets his people and, and he presents this issue, this problem of the Israelite people, as saying there's so many of them that they're going to rise up and they're going to rebel and we are going to be wiped out as a people. So we've got to do something. And so he, 
he basically changes their status from being welcome in the land to being slaves in the land, in particular using the men to build two strategic cities, but other places that were outposts, military places, to defend the country. But the point was to enslave these people so that they could not rise up, and ultimately they would not multiply. But the text tells us that even with the enslavement, God was blessing his people and they were multiplying. And so what happened was he wrapped it up so that not only were they enslaved, but now this was a hard enslavement. And that was what they were experiencing. And the people continued to multiply. I mean, just realistically, logically, the formula doesn't seem to work, (laughs) right? But this is God who is doing his, his work in his people in spite of these kinds of um, obstacles. And then Pharaoh comes up with what might call a secret plan. He gets the, the midwives of the, of the Hebrews and he says, listen, when a child is born, if it's a boy, I want you to kill it. If it's a girl, let it live. And it was all supposed to be kind of like cloak and dagger. You know, like, you know, child is born, you take it away, it's a boy, okay, I kill it and come back. Oh no, it died, you know, that kind of a thing. But of course, the midwives would not do that. They feared God rather than fearing Pharaoh. And they would not play in his reindeer games. All right? And so what happened? (laughs) The people of Israel continued to to multiply. Well, this is bad news for Pharaoh, but we would call that abortion. They were basically told to murder those children right at the point of birth. And then the next context, as we find at the end of the story here, is this, this secret might want to say mission or the secret plan or the secret agenda that he had was no longer secret. He just came out and he says in a royal edict, if you come across a Hebrew infant, you are to throw it into the Nile River so that it will drown. That was basically infanticide. So this is the context in which this story takes place. My friends, this is helpful because we understand now why the parents are so concerned. What we have here with, with Pharaoh is a picture of pure evil, evil that stands against God and his will, evil that is willing to enslave, to murder because of fear. And Pharaoh had harnessed the skill of justifying his evil under the guise of fear, protection, certain rebellion, and possible extinction. It's much like Hitler and his cronies did that brought about the animosity toward the Jewish people. Hans Frank, the head of the Nazi party in in Poland, once told his men this. As far as the Jews are concerned, I want to tell you quite frankly that they must be done away with one way or the other. Gentlemen, I must ask you to rid yourself of all feeling of pity. We must annihilate the Jews. Those same chilling words could have come from Pharaoh himself. His attitude, his heart, his desire was to rid himself of these people. And now according to this edict, the Egyptians were to be vigilantes to go find male infants and throw them into the Nile so that they would drown. So friends, this is a dark setting. But it is in this setting, in this darkness, that we find the tension of God's providence in raising up his deliverer for his people. 
in the face of great opposition. How in the world is this going to happen? See, we, we're so familiar with the story, and we've typically heard it kind of more in the Sunday school setting or you know, kind of in this, this warm setting of this, this mother who loves her son and puts the basket in there. And, but we don't always necessarily see it in light of the greater picture of what is going on here. The question now is this, how will God deliver his people? And the answer is, by his providence. And friends, what is providence? Just kind of in layman's terms, providence is, is how God puts it all together for the good of his people. It's how he works with the affairs of man and, and, and this world to bring about his purposes among his people. So in this text, God will set his providential hand over the affairs of three groups of people, the baby's parents, the daughter of Pharaoh, and the baby's sister. So let's jump in, first of all, at the faith of the child's parents. Let's read verses 1 through 4 again. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it, placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, right from the start, we realize these are simple parents of the tribe of Levi. This is the tribe that was responsible for priestly duties. But we also have to ask ourselves the question, is there any place in Scripture that might help us understand what's going on here? That might help us understand how we are to interpret these events in this narrative. And one of the places that we need to go is what we find in Hebrews chapter 11, and verse 23, of course, this is the by faith section of Scripture in Hebrews, right? This is the, the hall of faith, we often call it. And this is what we learn about this particular moment. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. This is not talking about Moses' faith. This is talking about the faith of the parents, and not only were they parents who exercised faith, but they were also parents who were fearless before Pharaoh. So we have an interpretive tool there that helps us understand what's going on with these parents that will help us kind of navigate our way through the story. But there's something here we find about this child, right? There's something that sets him apart. It says here, this child was beautiful. That's Hebrews. This child was beautiful. If you go back to the, the, the text that we're in here, it says when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And there's another passage of Scripture that deals with this. This is Stephen preaching, and um, this is what he says in chapter, uh, Acts chapter 7 and verse 20. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. Ah, so this isn't, this isn't just parents looking down at their child and saying, oh, isn't that child beautiful? Now, I know when babies are born, they're newborn, you know, I know the mom and the dad usually say, oh, isn't that child beautiful? But we all know that our children are born with gumby heads, right? I mean, they're bent all over the place, and you're like, I hope that's going to straight out. But that child's beautiful. That's really beautiful, right? 
This is not simply about human beauty. There's something uniquely special about this child that they recognize as parents. And what Stephen tells us in his sermon is that there's something about this child that God was recognizing. Not, like, not that God showed up and said, oh, wow, there's something about this child. No, this, this child, there's something about this child that is a reflection of the heart of God. That he is doing something here in this moment with this child. We don't exactly know what it was they saw, but there was something there that they saw to recognize this child is unique and we need to do what we can to care for this child beyond being parents, recognizing this child is special before God. And so what we know then are two things. Let me just highlight them again. First of all, they were not afraid of the king's edict. Secondly, they acted by faith. They hid him and they carefully concocted a plan. Now there are two, these are two admirable marks of godly people. Faith, a settled trust in a sovereign God. Fearlessness. It is a fearlessness in the face of spiritual opposition. Now, don't, don't read this text and just think that they're, they're functioning somewhat mechanical without any feelings. This, this mother was taking care of this son. She's doting on this child. She's nursing this child. She's caring for this child. And she realizes that in the tension of the moment, with all the stuff that's happening around her, that every moment this child is alive is a special moment. Because little baby boys were being taken and thrown into the Nile. So she was at a crisis point. She could hide him no longer, the text tells us. So these were desperate times. And by faith, the boy's parents took desperate measures. Now, friends, there's nothing easy about what we're reading in this text. The Nile had become the river of death. If the children were not drowned in the river of death, they were certainly devoured by crocodiles in the river of death. So their plan was truly dangerous. Yet in the face of that danger, these parents acted by faith. The mother carefully prepared this basket, making sure that it was properly coated with tar and pitch. And notice the words that are used here. She put the child in. You can just imagine the gentle placement. She placed that basket among the reeves uh, by the riverbank. You know, as I studied this text, my mind was flashing back to Abraham and his experience with Isaac. You know the story. God says, take your son Isaac up the mountain and offer him to me as a sacrifice. And you ask yourself, I wonder what was going through his mind. God, I want to be obedient, but I can't believe I'm doing this. Why has it come to this? If only there were another way. And I just have to ask myself, what's going through the mind of this child's mother? Fighting through the emotional difficulty that any parent would have at a time like this, she, she dotes on her son. I'm sure that before she places the baby in the basket, she hugs it one more time, she kisses that child. But you see, the, 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 the circumstances were such that it was either that child was going to die because it was going to be taken by soldiers or Egyptians, or it was going to be devoured. It's a tense moment. What's going to happen here? I mean, it's a plan, 
But friends, it's a dangerous plan. But as she lets go of that basket, she truly is placing this child in the hands of a sovereign God. Now, one commentator suggests that this mother's actions are an ironic reversal of Abraham's in Genesis 22, which is what we're talking about, Abraham and Isaac. Abraham obeys God in order to kill his son Isaac, yet Isaac is spared. This mother disobeys Pharaoh's order to kill her child, yet this child is spared. In one incident, God honors obedience. In the other incident, God honors defiance. Now, friends, isn't that true? Obedience to God's word matters, and if that means that you have to be in defiance of the law of the land, then so be it. This is where she finds herself. This is where these parents find themselves. Yet they act by faith, and they are fearless in their actions. Now we move on in the story, and we are somewhat surprised, because next on the scene, we find Pharaoh's daughter. And what we find essentially with Pharaoh's daughter is that she is sympathetic to this child. Let's look again at verses 5 and following. Now, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Now, although she could not have understood the wider implications of her actions, she was acting in defiance to her father's orders and allowed her sympathy to rule the day. Now, it's worth recognizing that although she is listed as Pharaoh's daughter, she's not likely to have sat at the table with him or bounced on his lap or actually even been in his presence. The history books show that pharaohs often had many wives and then many children. And there are some pharaohs around this time, one in particular that had 162 children. Have fun managing that, okay? So we can't, don't think, you know, this is, this is his daughter that's always hanging out with him and all this kind of stuff. That's, that's not it at all. But one thing is true As Pharaoh's daughter, she had clout. (laughs) She was royal. She was of a privileged family. And so you have this this royal presence then. And you have this plan. And it must be, you just got to think through it. It must be that, that, that this child's parents recognized the habit of Pharaoh's daughter. That would only be the thing that would come to my mind, is that they knew that there was some opportunity here, um, but didn't know how it was going to go. So as they put the the basket in the water, you can see how the tension is building just in the story. She's bathing, she's walking, she's spotting the basket. And in the Hebrew language, it's it's rather choppy in in the way it's being said. Every little item in the story is being singled out. She saw the basket, she sent for the basket, she took the basket, she opened the basket, she saw the child, she saw that the child was, was, was bawling, she took pity on him. It's like it's bringing a, a zoom lens into the story. And friends, it's just, it's just worth realizing that the writer is seeking 
to help us understand the suspense and the tension in all of this. What this daughter of Pharaoh does with this little Hebrew boy determines so much. This is the tension, friends, of God's providence. The dominoes of God's providence always seem to us to be in peril. (laughs) I mean, just think through just briefly the story here. God has promised to bless the seed of Abraham, but how is God going to do such such a thing through a, a dysfunctional family, and especially if he's saying, go offer your only son as a sacrifice to me? It's just, it's put in peril. Then you have, you know, the blessing that continues to Isaac, and again, this family is dysfunctional, and his sons Esau and Jacob are at odds with each other, and then the promise continues to Jacob, and of course, Rachel, the love of his life, is barren, but his other wife, um, uh, Leah, and the two female servants, Zilpah and Bilhah, they have children, but it's not till after all that that Rachel finally is is given the, the, the joy of having two children, and that's Joseph and Benjamin. But see, there's there's this peril going on. There's a tension going on in the unfolding of God's providence. How in the world is he going to do this? How is God going to work in the context for his people when they are numerous but under the hands of the Egyptians? And not only under the hands of the Egyptians, but so under their hands that they're killing off their baby boys. How's he going to do it? Although the dominoes of God's providence repeatedly seem to be in peril, they are fixed by the mighty hand of God who works his will through the affairs of man. And in this case, though the affairs of a young woman through those affairs who happened to be in Pharaoh's, uh, be Pharaoh's daughter, that's how he was going to work. This is his plan. It's a strange plan. It's not what we would necessarily think of, but this is how God is going to accomplish his purposes here. And friends, it is a reminder to us that in the darkness of evil, real, true, rebellion against God kind of evil, that God's hand of providence is still at work, guiding the affairs of his people and moving them toward the end where he will establish his kingdom once again. What we have here is a beautiful picture of common grace. And what is common grace? Common grace is when God works through people, not necessarily because they're believers. Here you have someone who's a pagan, a pagan woman raised in a pagan culture who doesn't have an awareness of the God of Israel, except the fact that maybe the Hebrews worship the God of Israel. And she comes and she sees this child. She knows it's a Hebrew child. That's what the text tells us, right? She knows the edict of her father. (laughs) And yet, rather than be obedient to his edict, she has compassion. (laughs) This is a common grace thing. Let me explain what I'm saying. You get on a plane and you're saying to yourself, I hope there's no kids around me, right? We all know what we're talking about, unless we have kids, right? right? I hope there's no kids around me. And then right next to you is this mom, and she has this newborn next to you. 
and something happens in you. You're like, all right then. And the mom's struggling, and what do you do? Hey, can I help you? And you start goo, 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 goo with the baby, right? You haven't met this person at all. And you start just being compassionate and tender toward this little one. Look, you don't have to be some magnificently godly man or woman to be captivated by a little baby. It happens all the time. It's common grace. It's a common affection. God created man with the capacity for this kind of compassion. And God is working his plan through a pagan girl and her compassion to bring about his will. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? God is working his plan through her human emotions. But there's also divine humor here. And remember, to whom is Moses writing this? For whom is he writing this? He's writing this for the second generation of the children of Israel that are in the wilderness. And what is he wanting them to realize? Well, he wants them to realize that God wants to be known. And he wants them to know the history of their people. And he wants them to know that God is at work taking care of his people, providing for his people, delivering his people. And so what you have here then in this divine humor is that with Pharaoh's edict to kill the infant boys and throw them into the Nile, that one of his own family, a daughter, would not only defy her father by rescuing the evil boy child, but he would make sure that he was raised in a good home and financially Uh, finally, I should say, adopted into the greater family of Pharaoh. And a Hebrew, reading this passage, he's reading it with a sense of satisfaction. And he's smiling at the providence of God in bringing about his purposes and in raising up a deliverer. Dale Davis reminds us when he says, whenever there is humor in the Bible, there's always a point to be made. And there's a dark side to the humor here, isn't there? The humor here shows how easily the God of heaven makes doofuses out of the rulers and tyrants and head knockers of this age who love to strut their stuff and grind God's people beneath their feet. In 1934, there was a Nazi party rally in Nuremberg, Germany, when it was declared boldly, the German form of life is definitely determined for a thousand years. Some of you know that. Some of you lived during some of that. That's why the Third Reich Empire is called the Thousand Year Reich. Except that 12 years, four months, and eight days later, it didn't exist anymore. Yes, it had strutted around and caused just terror and devastation in particular around Europe. But in the end, it had become the butt of one of God's jokes. Now friends, in the same way for the second generation Jews wandering in the wilderness who knew of the the suffering and devastation their ancestors had 
experienced at the hand of the Egyptians, they would read this story, remember the darkness, but smile because Pharaoh had become the butt of one of God's jokes. And the joke's going to continue. It is the humor of God's providence that is good news for God's suffering people and makes them able to laugh again. Now, friends, that doesn't mean that everything's, you know, peachy keen, hunky-dory, however you want to say it. Life is tragic. There is suffering. And yet God in his providence is at work through heartache, difficulty, and trial, bringing about his purpose. And friends, that's for us to see the bigger picture. Sometimes we're so consumed with God being our genie for the moment that we don't recognize that he is the God of eternity. And eternity is far more important than how you feel in this moment. Now, it might make you mad, but that's the reality of things. It's far more important that you know that your position in Christ is right than that that bill is paid this month or that that suffering that you're going through is alleviated. In light of eternity, those things mean nothing. So we move from God's providence through the faith and fearlessness of parents, the pity and protection of Pharaoh's daughter, to the care and courage of this child's sister. Here's the third part. We pick it up at verse 4 because we notice there that she, she looks on from a distance just to see what would be done with him. But then we see in verse 7 and following that she begins to talk with Pharaoh's daughter. Now, you know, we can just pass by this, but there's some things we need to think through here. It's likely, very likely, that she was somewhere between the ages of 8 or 12. Not old enough necessarily to be a servant or a slave somewhere, but old enough to be able to watch out for her little brother and to observe what's happening, and old enough to be able to articulate some things to someone who's very important. Again, let's pick it up at verse 7. And his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. My friends, when we see in the light of God's providence, this this interaction is quite staggering and symbolic. We have two daughters, the daughter of a king and the other, the daughter of an unnamed Levite man. Prominence, significance, power, enslavement. But in this moment, there's an unexpected unity in this diversity. They're coming together. There's a coming together for the purpose of God's plan. Now, a few questions come to mind. Did Pharaoh's daughter catch on to the fact that this was all an orchestrated plan? Did she sense that this girl was somehow associated to this baby in the basket? Did she catch that the girl's offer for a nurse was a plea on the behalf of the mother of this Hebrew boy? I don't know. The text doesn't say. But what it does tell us is that this child's sister 
was extremely bold and courageous in the face of someone extremely important. Not only was she watching her little brother, but she approaches Pharaoh's daughter and she speaks to her. Now, obviously this had to be a bilingual context, right? Hebrew, Egyptian, I would expect that there was some understanding here of that. Now, by all accounts, as I mentioned, she's, she's young. But you can imagine her parents talking with her and walking her through what needs to happen. This is what you need to do. And then, as you have the opportunity here, this is what you need to say to Pharaoh's daughter when you talk to her. I don't know about you, but if you're talking to your children and giving them instructions, this would be a hard pill to swallow for them. And yet she carries through the plan in such a way that she is able to talk and talk sensibly to Pharaoh's daughter and to offer uh, someone to actually nurse this child. So these would have been tough, intense times followed by some tough, intense words that would have taken much courage to get out from this little one. And again, it would appear that the faith and fearlessness of the parents spilled over into this young girl so that she towers in her courage to both stand before and speak to this member of this royal family. Now, here's a word for those who are younger in our context. You don't have to wait until you're all grown up to have great faith, to be fearless, and to have great courage for God and his purposes. You may be tempted to say, well, I'm just a kid. I'm just in high school. I've got homework to do. I've got PlayStation to play. I shoot some hoops or something like that. In a little while, maybe later, then, then I'll be bold for Jesus. Or maybe you're saying to yourself, I'm too young and insignificant. I'll just, I'll just wait until after college. Then I'll be free to serve God, and, and I'll do it freely and boldly for him. But notice that this young girl served God in her situation, in her crisis, with her parents. She was a woman of great courage when it was needed most, and she must have caught the vision of her parents for her brother. And her conviction, her faith, her fearlessness, and her great courage were the fruit of that conviction. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking of your brother, and you're saying to yourself, Pastor Rod, the only kind of deliverer my brother will ever be is to be a pizza delivery guy, okay? I understand that. I know your brother, right? I know your sister. But the point of application here is not to say, look at your brother. The point here is to look at the beautiful and special deliverer, Jesus himself. He is the motivation for your faith, your fearlessness, and your courage. In other words, this is not so much about you. This is about Christ. This is about his purposes. This is about his will. You don't have to wait. You can do it now. Now, that is true for all of us in this room, but I just especially want to encourage the young people, don't wait. Start now. Friends, just as this passage is not given to us to teach us principles of parenting, although having faith and fearlessness is a good thing, neither is it given to us to teach us the principles of how to be a good brother or sister. It is given to us to show us how God uses normal and simple people who act boldly 
for the sake of God's chosen deliverer. Now, it plays out. It plays out with strong character from the parents and bold character from this young girl. But the point of the story is not to teach principles on parenting. The point of the story is not to say, this is how you care for your brothers. The point of the story is to say, this is how you are used to bring about God's purposes. So a modern-day application would be for a child who has grown up in a godly Christian home to say, I have embraced my parents' faith in Christ, and I desire to live for, for him for the glory of God, and I want to be the new generation that stands up with faith and fearless courage in the face of all who oppose the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. Young people, you can do that. And quite frankly, the churches are strongest when its young people are passionate about the things of God. It's the young people that go out and pioneer in missions and fight the fights in places that are hard. And our desire here at Gateway is to see that happen with our young people. Not to say, well, maybe one day you'll get it all together and you can start serving him. No, start serving him now. See what it looks like now. And we should be praying toward that and for our young people. But then we move now into this this fourth section. I'm calling it the providence of Israel's God. And we're bringing things to a close in one sense, but we're kind of opening a whole new window. All of these events are working together so that we come to the end of this text in verse 10 and we read the following. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son and she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Clearly, there's still much faith and courage that Moses' parents must exercise. As agreed, the boy grew older and his parents would have to give him up for adoption. Can you imagine the difficulty of, first of all, nursing the child, (laughs) delivering the child, having the child coming back? That's joyful. It's wonderful. Now the child is in my presence, and the parents are thinking, this is wonderful, but that child is only going to be there for a time, and that child has to be given over again. I mean, you just imagine the emotional roller coaster that's going on here, and yet there's courage, there's faith going on here. But trusting God... The mother fulfills her obligation and brings the boy to Pharaoh's daughter who takes her and raises him as her very own. And she, that's Pharaoh's daughter, names him Moses, a Hebrew name that means to draw out. Isn't it interesting? She's choosing a Hebrew name for him. It's also interesting that in the Egyptian language, that name also sounds very much like the Egyptian word to give birth. And ultimately, God's providence will be magnified because her actions will give birth to the establishing of God's deliverer who will draw Israel out of Egypt. I mean, it's just a wonderful, beautiful picture here. And friends, this is a beautiful story of faith, courage, sympathy in the midst of darkness and evil. But although those are all wonderful attributes that we should all embrace to be people of faith, to be people of courage, to be people of sympathy for humankind. The truth is, it is only because God's will and providence are at work that any of these things took place. 
Let me say it this way. God calls us to be people of faith, courage, and sympathy, but those qualities alone do not guarantee any outcome. It is only God that guarantees his outcome. Now, friends, sometimes this is not how we think. We think, God, I have prayed. I have been holy. I have been pursuing you. Why did you not do X, Y, and Z? These are all things he wants you to do, and you should be doing these things. But it's only God who determines the outcome. Get the difference there. Doing these things are not somehow manipulation tools to get what we want. They're aspects of what it means to follow God. And if God so chooses to bring about an outcome, that is his will. That is his prerogative. But our behavior and our practice are not guarantees of a certain outcome. And friends, I think that's helpful for us because it changes then how we approach these things, right? We're not like, all right, God, I read my Bible. You're going to do what I asked you to do now? God, I prayed. Now are you going to see, see how that, that can change? God, I'm doing what you want me to do, but I'm leaving it in your hands. And whatever you choose to do, that's great. So we still do these things. My friends, this is so important for us. It's only because God's providence was working in and with and through those godly attributes that this baby boy is protected and delivered from certain death and eventually finds his place in Pharaoh's household. So friends, it's ultimately God's providence here that shines the brightest in this text. Now there's four things I want to share about the providence of Israel's God from this text. Number one, the silence of God's providence. I've tried my best through this whole sermon to not say Moses, to not say Jochebed or Amram or Miriam. Why? Because they're not mentioned except Moses in the end. There is a silence to these characters in the unfolding of the story that tells us that the story ultimately is not about them. And ultimately, the story not being about them is ultimately about the character who is always unnamed in the story, and that is God himself. He is the one who was working his will through these circumstances to bring about Moses, who will be the deliverer. And friends, this is... This is God's providence that is silent, quietly moving in the affairs of life. How do we often view God's providence? I think oftentimes we view God's providence with kind of a, a wow factor to it. Let me explain what I'm saying. You know, I went to Ukraine just a few weeks ago. And we had trouble with our bags and we were delayed at the airport and Long lines at passport control and almost missed our flight. We had to deal with some rude passengers. and I left my wallet and passport on the plane, missed our connecting flight, got lost in London when we were there. The hotel didn't have our reservation. I started to feel sick, but we made it through to Ukraine. Praise God for his providence. 
Uh, that's not what happened. I had an easy check-in process. I, it was relaxing before the flight. We had empty seats so we could lie down and sleep. Um, there were no problems at passport control. We arrived at our hotel without any problems. We slept well. Everything was pretty mundane. And it's because of God's providence. So what I'm trying to say is, we often think of God's providence in wow terms. When the reality is the fact that you got up in the morning, you had breakfast, you got the kids to school, you went to work, it was a boring day, but you did your job, you came home, you had dinner, you sat down with your wife and had some coffee, you watched something on TV, and you went to bed. Mundane! And yet God is at work in the midst of the mundane. He's not just the God that shows up when you go on a trip. Or something special is happening. His providence is always at work in your life. Always there. And so if nothing is happening, God's providence is at work. There's a silence to God's providence. Secondly, there's a suspense in God's providence. Again, familiarity with the story can hinder us from seeing the beauty of the suspense that is shouting at us in neon lights, right? The future of God's deliverer is in the hands of two parents who have to overcome their fear and act with wisdom and faith for the sake of their son and for God's blessing. What would happen if one of them started to to kind of struggle with their fear and, and begin to lack some faith? Oh no, what's going to happen? The future of of God's deliverer is in the hands of a young sister who has to say the right things. I mean, if it was me, I'd be like, well, how will we be better? And I wouldn't be able to get all the things out. I'd be so nervous in the moment. But there's a delicacy here. There's There's a suspense to God's providence. The future of God's deliverer is in the hands of a pagan daughter of royalty, which she follow her father's command, which she recognize a Hebrew boy and call out to have it drowned in the river, which she defy her father's royal edict by rescuing the child, provide an income for its mother, a future as an adoptive son. See, the history of God's people will hinge on these little details. <laughs> Little details, aren't they? And they're right there in the text. And yet God's providence rules it all. The silence of God's providence, the suspense of God's providence, the surprise of God's providence. What's so surprising about this? Well, if you were a original listener or reader of this story that Moses is writing for his people, as soon as you started reading the story, something would jump out at you and you'd be going, aha. Because see, in in the English language, when we read the word basket, what we don't connect is the fact that in the Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word tabah. And the only other time that it's used is in Genesis chapter 6 through verse 8. Multiple times, it's translated as ark. Surely Moses is making a deliberate connection here. Just like God built a big ark so eight people and a whole bunch of animals could survive the flood, 
so saving his people. So now he's building a little ark for one baby, so saving his people. And that is how God worked in Jesus. You can see the similarities in the stories, can't you? Jesus faced the same thing. A tyrannical king who ordered all the baby boys in Bethlehem to be killed. Parents who believed, so they fled to Egypt. Just as God saved Moses so that he could deliver his people, so God saved the baby Jesus so that he could deliver his people. Kevin DeYoung helps out. He says, when the human rescue looked impossible, the world's power seemed impressive, and God's people seemed so vulnerable, God had a plan that could not be thwarted. God delivered and raised up Moses so that he could deliver the Israelites. And 14,000 years later, God would deliver and raise up Jesus so that he could deliver us. God always, always, always has a plan. And often the plan is surprising. The surprise ark of God's deliverance with Noah was a huge boat. The surprise ark of God's deliverance with Moses was a small basket. The surprise ark of God's deliverance with Jesus was a cross of execution. Three different vehicles that God chooses chooses to use to bring about his deliverance. It's the surprise, friends, of God's providence. Finally, the mystery of God's providence. Now, friends, this is a hard one, and I hate to end on a downer, but I think it's something we need to address, we need to see, and we need to think through. As we look at our text today, we may ask, why is it that God allows such death and suffering and abuse and injustice to, 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 place, uh, to take place in so many of the lives of his children, but to one family, he brings deliverance and joy? And what about all those other families who lost their sons to the Egyptian vigilantes? What about them? Flash forward to the town of Bethlehem after the birth of Jesus. Why does God warn Joseph and Mary in a dream so that they're able to flee to Egypt for safety and not any of the other parents who would have their sons killed by Herod's soldiers? It's a dilemma, isn't it? Friends, it's a a reminder to us of our tendency to moralize texts of Scripture by looking to place our lives and our circumstances into the texts that we're studying. You're not Moses. That's not the point. And we've got to be careful. God doesn't guarantee our personal deliverance from our suffering here and now. What he does guarantee is the eventual deliverance of his people through a chosen deliverer. Those are two different things. You see, we're so tuned to say, what is it about the parents of this child that that I need to see? When what's screaming at us is, this is the kind of God we serve. This is the kind of God that works his plan through circumstances that seem so overwhelming and dark that nothing can come out of it. 
but he raises out of obscurity a deliverer. And he even uses the daughter of the, <laughs> the guy who's the most evil guy at that moment who's opposed to his plan as the means by which he's going to do it. See, it's not about the parents. It's not about the sister. It's about God. He is sovereign. He is providentially working in your life. I don't know exactly how. I know what he wants you to do. He wants you to seek to be faithful as a follower of him, a child of God, and let him work out his plan in your life. But his plan might include suffering. It might include heartache. It might include you know, some kind of difficulty. But it's all happening because he's seeking to bring glory to himself. But if we're bought in to even a, a sense of a health, wealth, and prosperity thinking, then the focus becomes about us rather than about him. Now listen, God is promising in this text, he's showing us in this text that he cares about his people. That's the whole point in bringing a deliverer. But he's not so much concerned about bringing comfort to his people. Big difference. And we equate things with our comfort. And friends, it's God's glory and his purposes that need to rule and reign in our hearts. That's the mystery here of God's providence. Now, let's just bring this to a close. The tension of God's providence. Why is God doing this in my life? Why is this happening This tension of God's providence, friends, is where we live. It's why we pray. It is the journey that God has called us to as we seek to live for him. So the goal here is not to seek to remove the tension, but to rest in God's providence as the tension is happening. Let me remind you, we are living in a sin-cursed world. There is going to be tension. There's always going to be tension. That's why we long for heaven. (laughs) So it's not to somehow, oh, how can we get rid of the tension? It's okay, the tension is going to be there, but then how, how do I rest in him in the midst of this tension, seeking to glorify him and do his will? So look at your life and ask yourself the question, am I seeking to resist the tension God has called me to? Or am I seeking to rest in God's providence in the context of that tension? Friends, heartache, trials, implications for sinful choices, words expressed in times of anger and frustration, loneliness, fear, anxiety, uncertainty, et cetera, et cetera, They're all various forms of tension God allows in our lives while he is moving us down the path to be like his son. That's why it's healthy for us to be reminded of a verse like this. Paul says to the Philippian church, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He tells you he began and he's going to fulfill 
But he doesn't say, and it's going to be a comfortable ride. Does he? And that would be dishonest. So he's leading us down the path toward maturity. And as we journey down that path, intention comes from various places. We can lean on him. And I want to leave you with Psalm 37. I thought what, what Albert began with this morning was fabulous. Very, very similar to what we're going to see here. But just think through this psalm. It's the beginning of the psalm. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as light and your justice as noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Now the point here is this from this text, is that there's, a, there's an anchoring of the heart that we need to have in the midst of this tension. It's not to fight God. It's to rest in him. It's to trust him. It's to lean on him. All right? And we, we then don't try and manipulate his providence. We rest in it. And things might even go sour. And it's all part of his providence. So what do we do? We don't resist. We continue to rest. Continue to do his will. Continue to affix ourselves on him. My friends, we need that. Why? Because we're going to walk out today and life is going to be full of tension. And we might say, God is not at work in this tension. Oh, yes, he is. And God expects something of us. And that is a godly character that's being fleshed out no matter what. The outcome, though, is not dependent on us. The outcome is dependent on him and his purposes. Lord, help us today to grab a hold, just Lord, of, of the reality of this tension that we live in. This moment in this text, Lord, was a hinge in the history of your people. We couldn't have planned it. We couldn't have orchestrated the details. I know Moses' parents had a plan for something to happen there. But Lord, you breathed into that situation with your providence. And Lord, you accomplished your purposes and you raised this boy up to be a man in a place ready to serve you and your people. Lord, help us as we reflect to be in awe of you and your ways, to trust your sovereignty, to lean on your providence, and to give you the glory through it all. We ask now in your precious holy name. Amen.